to our penultimate guest this evening. Lo, he is come among us again. <laughs> I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Richard Holloway back into our fold. Um, a round of applause for this amazing, amazing man. His, um, His last appearance ended with every single person in the room crying, including me, um, and jumping to their feet. And it prompted Sam Baker, who's the editor of Red Magazine, to write an editorial um, asking, is religion the new rock and roll? Um, Richard was the Bishop of Edinburgh and the Primus of the Scottish Episcopal Church. Tonight, he returns, I'm told to say, to, re uh, to, to talk about um, his new memoir, Leaving Alexandria. Please welcome Richard Holloway. <laughs> Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be back. Um, I'm not going to read from um, the book. I thought I'd say something about it. On July the 8th, 2009, I was standing in a graveyard in the middle of England when my phone went. And it was my American daughter phoning me on her birthday. And when she asked where I was, I burst into tears. And I wrote this book, in a sense, to try and find out why I did that. It wasn't just any graveyard. It was a monk's graveyard. It was the graveyard of an Anglican religious order called the Society of the Sacred Mission, which in 1903 had come to Kellam Hall, just outside Newark, on the banks of the River Trent, to found uh, a theological seminary that trained poor working-class boys for the priesthood. They were called in those days boys from the humbler classes. And the man who founded the order was a remarkable Victorian genius, a bit of a maverick, called H.K. Herbert Kelly. And he'd um, bought this big house, a Gilbert Scott spectacular. If you want an idea of what it looks like, go and stand outside St. Pancras Hotel um, and miniaturize it. Um, because it, it's a slightly less manic version of St. Pancras Hotel. Um, I went there um, in nine, uh, 1948 as a wee boy of 14 from a town in the west of Scotland called Alexandria. And I fell in love with the place. Um, it was an immensely disciplined place. The society built an enormous chapel behind the old house with the second biggest concrete dome in England. And it was a transcendent space, a kind of space that called you to give yourself away to some ultimate purpose, some great transcendent ideal. Father Hillary used to say of uh, the chapel, we give our life, we give our all inside this great big tennis ball, um, because it did have this colossal dome. I go back to um, that graveyard, which is no longer attached to the order, because the order left Kellam in 1973. They ran into difficulties, as a lot of religious orders do. Um, and it's now uh, the headquarters of Sherwood and Newark District Council, so it's government offices. And I go back like a lost soul every couple of years, and I stand in the graveyard, because I remember those old men. It was a kindly place. My book's not a misery. It's not a, an example of mislit. It's an example of searchlit. I, I, I go back to that graveyard, and I remember those old men who taught me the dust now, and I scrape the lichen off the tombs, and I know they'd be disappointed in me because I didn't complete the race. I didn't hold to the course. I left the church um, as a bishop in some controversy, 
Um, and I wrote this book to try and find out how that happened, how I, who came to that place to give myself away to this spectacular transcendent purpose, found my journey gradually eroding my relationship with the church, and so that I walked away um, in the year 2000. It's a memoir. It's not an autobiography. An autobiography seems to me usually to be an exercise in self-justification, especially if you're a politician, um, and you, you, you show how you got everything right. I got lots of things wrong, and this book is a piece of personal archaeology. I'm trying to understand how I was the kind of person that got into those kind of scrapes. Kierkegaard said we live our lives forward, but we understand them backward. And when you get to my age, you realize that you weren't the kind of person you wanted to, be, wanted to be when you started out. I wanted to be an ascetical saint. I wanted to give myself away in poverty, celibacy, and obedience. I wanted to be a kind of transcendent, almost semi-human apparition of goodness on earth. And I discovered that I was not capable of any of those things. And in my researches for the book, my researches into my own mind, into my own history, because it's a piece of personal archaeology, I discovered two things. I didn't really have a big quarrel with God. God was always semi-present to me. He was more the presence of an absence uh, than the presence of a presence. But I kind of lived with that. Um, Scotsmen are usually emotionally unavailable, and I thought, well, <laughs> why should God be any different? Um, <laughs> And I'd got used to this idea of God as a possibility um, because we are mysterious creatures. We've got these big brains. Uh, we don't know where we came from. We don't know where the universe came from. And I believe with Wittgenstein, the great philosopher, that every, if every scientific question is answered, we're still left with the basic problem of the meaning of existence. And I gave myself to that search, confident that the answer had already been found. And more and more I discovered over the years um, that religion got in the way of that search. Religion got in the way of that ultimate possibility, that ultimate reality. And it did it in two ways, because it stopped asking questions. It kind of officialized teaching about the unknowable mystery of God and said, ah, yeah, we've got it. We've got it taped. This is what God is. This is. And so you get this pack, and if you're ordained, you have to swear to the truth of unknowable mystery. I coped with that a bit, <laughs> because you can cross your fingers behind your back when you're being, when you're being ordained, as a lot of people do to a lot of it, because they think that on the whole, the, the in institution carries wonderful values. The bit that finally got to me, however, was that this institution that carries itself through time and the memory of God and teaching about God also carries a lot of cruelty. And the reason is fairly straightforward. Most of the big religions started way back when, two, 3,000 years ago. And they not only discovered some wonderfully enduring virtues and ideas like mercy and forgiveness and compassion and redemption, they also carry with them the cultural baggage of the time. They carry the prejudices of those days through history. And it's very difficult for them to to abandon them because they persuaded themselves that the texts in which these ancient prejudices are carried are somehow revealed by God. So how do you object to God's command to stone gaze and to subordinate women if it's God that said it? And increasingly, I came to the view that God didn't say these things, if there is a God in any kind of sense in which we understand that. We said these things. 
Because one of the things that religion does, it projects its own search for meaning out there onto that great screen and bounces back a picture of itself that it persuades itself is God. Um, and so I, I was more and more uneasy with that. And the thing that finally clinched it for me, finished it for me, was the church's manifest hatred of gay people. Many of my mentors had been gay priests. There are lots of gay priests, lots of gay bishops. More gay priests are out than gay bishops. Um, that's a bigger deal, although they get to wear fancier you know, clothes. Um, <laughs> Damien, Damien would make a perfect archbishop. He would, he would love it. Can you imagine the bling, the big chunky crosses? <laughs> the big Ku Klux Klan hat. And then, and then you sweep into cathedrals wearing a cope. And what they do when you're made a bishop, they take out your instep and they insert wee casters so that you, you don't walk into cathedrals, you glaciate. You must have seen it because you've got to move very slowly with immense dignity. Um, yeah, okay. I'll ordain you before I go. Um, the thing that finished it for me was we, we struggled with the ordination of women, and we kind of got that sorted. Uh, and it's partly because there are one or two texts in the Bible that are actually quite obliging towards women. Um, there aren't any in the Bible obliging towards gay people. But I thought we would get over this. We would, we would realize that this is the right thing to do. Um, and we would do what we classically always do, which is appoint a commission to kick it into the long grass for a couple of generations until people die. Um, and a new generation that doesn't inherit the same kind of prejudices is born. There was a big conference in 1998. There's a conference every 10 years of Anglican bishops from all over the world. Imagine 700 men in pink frocks <laughs> in student accommodation, <laughs> queuing up for the loo, um, dreadful experience. I went to two of them. I'm still receiving deep therapy for them. But <laughs> the second one in 1998 turned into a hate fest and it finished me off. I've kind of inched back to the edge of the church. There's a lovely church I go to in Edinburgh, which I talk about in the book a lot. What happened in Lambeth 1998 was those 700 bishops, about 500 of them, didn't just say they disagreed with gay liber liberation. They expressed in the most ferocious way, hatred of gay people. It, one bishop likened it to a Nuremberg rally. I mean, there were actually barracking speakers who were taking a gentler, more liberal line, and something died inside me. Um, I came away from that, and I wrote a book called Godless Morality to try and keep God out of the debate, because it seemed to me that God was increasingly making coming to good human decisions impossible because how can you have, if you're arguing with someone over women's liberation or gay liberation and they say, well, I'd love to do it, but it's God. Um, and I thought, let's park God out of this because more and more the history of God is the history of us revising what God thinks or what we think God thinks. And so I walked away in the year 2000 and took to the hills and walked the hills and I wrote this book to try and figure out how all that happened. And I discovered, A, that I had an impatience with religion. I discovered, too, that I was genetically incapable of being loyal to, to, to institutions. Um, I didn't know that at the time when I committed myself to one. We need institutions in life. They carry great values, educational, spiritual, economic, political. 
But the trouble with institutions is they end up believing in their own existence rather than the purpose that they're carrying, and they're very resistant to change. I discovered that I'm, I don't have the institutional loyalty virus. I'm a kind of person on the edge. I was breaking the rules from the get-go. I didn't even know half the rules. I was marrying divorced people. I married my first gay couple in 1972 in the Lady Chapel at Old St. Paul's in Edinburgh. And Woo! what's the big deal? And here we go again. We still haven't resolved it. Um, I love religion because it carries enormously important values for us. And, and we're in danger of squeezing the beauty and the art and the drama of religion. Out, and we'll all be the losers for that. I just wish religion would somehow take on board what secular society has achieved, which is a kind of equivalence, a kind of kindness towards all. Um, so I'm back on the church, I go to my church, I sit in the edge, I've got one foot in and one foot out, and I just wish they'd get it. They'd grow up and realize that gay people are loved by the God who might even exist as much as the Archbishop of Nigeria is who hates them. That's me done, thank you. Speaking to you as a grotesque subversion of a universally accepted human right, um, I, I, I think that that's that's the voice that I didn't ever hear when I was growing up in a very religious household. You know, I I grew up, and one 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 half of my my family was um, Catholic, and the other half of my family was kind of Protestant for fun, Salvation Army, and that's you know that that's where I got my giggles. Um, growing up, and, and so, so much of you know what, what, what you're talking about seems so sane. That's the thing that always comes across to me um, in your writing. Um, but this, this is a memoir that's ab about you, so let's, let's, let's keep it focused on you, and we'll broaden it out a wee bit in a minute. Um, you, went to, you went to Cal when you were 14. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of certainty did you think you had then? Um, I didn't have much certainty, but I was consumed by an ideal. I was a wee rom a romantic boy. I, I roamed the hills, the Vale of Leven, and if you're a walker, if you cover landscape, you're always seeking for something behind it, a sense of latency, of otherness. So there was that. I was a fan of the cowboy movies. The cowboy movies were full of romantic heroes who, who sorted out bad people for good people and then rode off into the distance. And the monastic life seemed to me to be a kind of um, version of that. I thought of myself as Father Shane, although I'm twice as tall as Alan Ladd. Um, and, and the idea was that I'd give myself to this great purpose. And I went to Kellum to do that. I didn't know Christian doctrine. Um, it was the poetry of the thing, the drama of the liturgy, which was beautifully done. So well, it, it was it, the romance of it. You, you say, indeed, that there, all that being on shore, there were a number of stages on which we acted. Oh boy, Sports yeah. fields, lecture rooms, the common room and library. Mm. But the supreme stage was the chapel mm. itself, absolute in its theatricality. Mm. And you also talk about Betjeman's Golden Blaze. And I, mm. I think you were, mm. really, you were really wrapped up in that. Oh you were really God, turned on by the performativity yeah. of it, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, and watched myself at it, because one of the things I also... And it's maybe the movies gave me this. I'm always on my shoulder watching myself. I mean, um, and there is a sense in which the priesthood, and especially the episcopate, is a very theatrical role. I mean, you're doing, 
you're dressed in splendid vestments, you're doing this, the original drama of the mass, you're preaching, you're hurling, maybe not thunderbolts, but kind bolts at people. Um, and so it's very easy to, to see yourself doing all this. And I was anyway self-conscious as a wee boy because of all those movies. You know what movies are like to Scots. I mean, oh, we, yeah. we lost ourselves in them. Um, and yeah, there was always, I think, an authentic bit there, but there was always a bit of me watching me being holy, I looked holy, I was never really holy, but I, you know, I had this kind of haggard look, um, and, um, and, and played the parish priest, did all the things, but a bit of me was always kind of say, yeah, that, you know, there, there's Father Richard um, sitting by the bed, bedside of the dying, but I didn't have the ultimate patience that the real saint has. You quoted the McDermott poem. Yes, 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 that's true, sinking to the level of the self. But mm. I mean, it's very interesting what you say as well about Scottish people losing themselves in films because, mm. um, God, I suddenly sound really Scottish. Um, is, is the, uh, in, in no, no understanders if uh, we talk I, the way right, we used well, to. We'll just keep it for them, like. Yeah. Um, but, but the, um, no, I mean, eh? I. <laughs> Pick a windy, because you're gone. Um, the, um, the, 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 um, the, 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 in Glasgow, in actual fact, had the highest proportion of video ownership in the UK. This is a fact I discovered recently. So it's a mm -hmm. very kind of privatised mm -hmm. um, thing and a, and a real obsession with the mm -hmm. films. And you, and you went to the films with your mum sometimes, but it was something that you, kind of, a bond that you had with her, wasn't it? Oh, which absolutely. I thought was really interesting. She, uh, she was, um, she'd had a tough life. She was an orphan, had, had, um, had been sent to Quarrier's home in Bridge Weir outside Glasgow. Her mother, her father died when she was four, her mother died when she was eight of alcoholism, and her stepfather was a soldier in the HLI, the Highland Light Infantry, wounded and in a hospital. They patched him up and sent him back to the war, and they sent my mother to an orphanage. Um, and um, so she was always quite a vulnerable person, but she was a very charismatic woman, and she loved the movies, and I think I know why. She lost herself in them. Um, the poor in Scotland did. I mean, you know, they were our escape um, from uh, not unjoyful lives. We, I had a happy life um, in our room and kitchen. But, but, but there was a lot of drudgery for my mother and for my father, and the movies was the great escape. Um, you, you talk there about the, the lives, you know, the room and kitchen. Um, I was struck when, when I was reading the memoir about um, the fashions in religion and how there came to be a fashion for deeds, not creeds which is about being present in the lives of those who needed you mm. in a religious way, and mm. specifically the lives of the poor. Mm. And you talked about the lives of people in the Gorbals in Glasgow. And, you know, I grew up near Glasgow. I, the, the Gorbals was a place that was kind of like, you know, it, it, to me, it was Tower Blocks, but you were there before it was Tower mm. Blocks. Mm. And I was shocked, genuinely shocked, um, by, by what you wrote about that. Can you tell us about what, mm. what it was like there then? Um, the Gobbles, by the time I was there, the late um, 50s, early 60s, um, was um, a place that was characterized by a form of tendency called multiple occupation. Um, these were originally quite splendid Georgian terraces, the part of Gobbles I lived in. Um, it's just to the south side of the, cloud, the Clyde. And you'd have these big five apartment flats um, with, a, with a single water closet and a family in each flat um, I, I did an advertisement for a housing association. I started to try and do something about this. And I took a picture of a water closet and I headlined it 67 seater because 67 people used it. And I put that in Lady Magazine. We got quite a bit of money out of it for the housing association. Can you imagine that in the lady now? Yeah. yeah. Well, doesn't Boris Johnson's sister run it? Yes, she does. 
Well, I might try it. Um, oh. the, the, but the, it, because Gaul, uh, Glasgow had an intense um, housing problem after the war, 98,000 houses were in a state of dilapidation. And rather than doing what we wanted them to do, which was to decant people and restore the old tenements, Scots love tenements. They're natural to that northern country. They sit there, they're rugged, they're made of stone, gray or red sandstone, but they wanted a gesture. So they, they declared this an area of comprehensive redevelopment, which is a death sentence. It's a bit like being in death row in a Texas jail. Nothing happens. Um, and it was taken over by these uh, slum landlords who, who simply farmed people into these houses. Uh, there was a big boxing family was, was the main owner of these things. Um, and we campaigned to try and keep these things. They flattened them. They put the 20-story tower blocks up. And they've now gone because they were a disaster as well. So there's, there's a lot of poignancy in this book because I loved and love Scottish tenements that are great. You need them in London. <laughs> You've got these wee kind of... They are big. They are. Yeah, yeah. That speaks to yeah. the other Scott yeah. in the room. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, yeah. I think what, what's interesting is that, you know, that at this point in your, in your life and in the memoir, you have a degree, again, of certainty. You have a mission, which is to, to end this very unfair system of, um, of tenancy. Um, you campaign against that very successfully. You did, in fact, start some of the very large housing associations, which now house a great number of people mm. um, and a significant greater uh, degree of comfort than, than they were before. But that certainty fades. And there's a theme that's consistent throughout the book. And um, the strap line for the book is a memoir of faith and doubt. Um, I think the book is actually really about faith in doubt, because that's where you exist. You exist permanently in a state of doubt. <coughs> About ultimate questions, yes, about yes. the big metaphysical... Yeah, but, and I don't see how you can not be. Um, but it's doubt rather than certainty that there's no outside or certainty that you know how the outside is furnished. So, yeah, you're right there. But, uh, but there is... Uh, I'm a passionate person, and I'm certain about uh, quite a lot of things, about things happening down here. Mm. And I think they're the things that the church should concentrate on, getting down here right and leaving whatever is out there, if there is an out there, out there to itself. If there is a God and he's any good, he'll be wanting that anyway. Oh, absolutely. And there's... there's um, she, maybe. She, he, <laughs> she. He, sh. Um, there, there's, there's a moment in the book where you, um, and you're incredibly honest in this memoir about, about, about things, you know, for, for, for a bishop who's supposed to be a bishop and believe in all those things, you really lay it on the line. You're very honest about the doubts that you have and the problems that you have and where they come from, and mostly it's the, the treatment of the church, of, of people in the real world. Um, and, and you talk about um, early on in Kellen becoming emotionally fixated on another novice, mm. um, another man or boy. Um, and again, he's somebody who's in an in-between in, in place. Um, you say he had the beautifully unformed body of a boy, neither soft nor hard, neither male nor female. And again, we're in this kind of liminal in-between space. And it's only years later when you meet him, mm. what happens? Mm. Yeah. Um, I, he was the only person, I fell in love with him, didn't, didn't use that that term, I just knew he was the only person at Kellam I wanted to be with, and I couldn't always be with him, so I went into a kind of state, I fell into regret. Um, I did extra work, extra gardening, all that stuff. I kind of hung around the edges of things. I read Russian novels, um, <laughs> and um, uh, we actually got a holiday together. Um, we, went, we went to um, Cornwall, we hitchhiked. I can remember the Roseby, Willowherb, and the roadsides, and uh, one night we, the only place we could get a bed for the night was in a farmhouse 
Um, and there was a double bed in the room. Um, and when we went to bed, I got into bed first. Um, and he came in and he said, I'll sleep on top of the sheet, which I thought was interesting. It hadn't occurred to me that things can happen in a bed. Um, and um, and he must have been more aware of the thing. Then um, I was sent to Africa shortly after that. I think they twigged that we were in love, that I was in love with him. And never, they didn't actually ask me, what's wrong with you? Why are you wandering around like a, kind of, like, like a ghost? Um, so they sent me to Africa, um, did my time in Africa, came back. Anyway, um, lost touch with him. I was elected Bishop of Edinburgh in uh, 19... 86, and the convention is that you go into retreat to prepare yourself with spiritual kind of, you know, with silence and all of that. I went to a retreat house in Kent. Um, I can still remember uh, the dawn chorus. And when I arrived there, one of the sisters said to me, um, there's someone who knows you here. And I recognized the habit of the Society of the Sacred Mission, black cassock, red girdle, cowl, and it was this guy. Um, and um, he was tougher, more weathered, more rugged-looking, more manly. Um, we didn't speak about it. I made my confession to him, and he was very gentle. Um, and then, leaving the next day, I was leaving to come back to Edinburgh uh, to be made a bishop. Um, and I, 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 I recalled that holiday, and he said, we were in love. And I said, yes. And he was leaving the order. He was another leaver. He was coming back from 30 years in Africa to live in a, a flat in County Durham. And I said, can I do anything for you? And he said, you could buy me a transistor radio. And I did. And he's now dying in an old folks home. Yeah. Sorry, I cried too much. It's the west of Scotland. <laughs> He was a lucky man. Um, questions? Yes, yes. Oh, she, okay. Like a toaster, that hand popped up. On you go. Um, last time I was here, the question is, how do you connect with people? But let me give you context. Last time I was here, I didn't come to see you. I came to see James Frey, because I like anything that is very controversial and out there. And so I came to you to see James Frey. And then you came and said uh, something around the Holocaust. And mm. everyone in this room was crying. Mm. Quite a lot of them are now, else. to be fair. And I was, <laughs> you were crying too then. Yeah, no, no, I was, and, I was crying. And I, I cry from connecting, but I find it very difficult to connect with people. But you always do it. You did it just now. Every time you do it. I, I went on YouTube and I saw a uh, an 1980. 1980s interview, if you can't go and see it, uh, and a woman was asking you about religion, and you connected with her, even though that you said that if she was born before, she wouldn't have a job because she was a woman. Okay, so I, I get the point that you're making, which yeah. is I, th I think that I think that, that that you do, and you know, it might be a little bit of the trick up the old scarlet silky sleeve, but you know, what's what what is what's what's going on? Because you do, 
there is a there's an empathy, and um, and that I think is the thing that, that struck our, our questioner there. And I, and a lot of people came to see James Fry, and I think it's interesting. I can tell you that that after after Richard spoke, James Fry was absolutely shit scared, <laughs> and and uh, and said, I can't, I can't, I can't go on, I can't go on. And I can't beat that. And I said, you know what? Why don't you try? Why don't you not try to do that? And why don't you just be honest about that? And he wasn't actually. It worked very well. So, 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 wait, you know, is that something that you felt you were saying it's the west of Scotland? Is it? Where, where is that vulnerability? That connection? That point that you meet people? Uh, that, it's very difficult to answer that. I, I know. Mean, I'm, I'm not, not saying sure it's easy. How I know that? Um, um, is that is that something that was that was in you that, that, that led you towards the church, or is that something that the church the church that my developed? You're looking at other mm, people, you're thinking about suffering. I think, I think my mother had. It. I was very close to my mother, uh -huh. and I think my mother had it. Um, and I think it's partly it, it's partly because um, I think I'm honest about you know the bad things, the failures I've had in life, and I think that, that w one of the things that that ruins relationships is when you're not in touch with your own vulnerability, your own kind of fucked upness. Mm. Um, and because most people are confused and messed up, and if you can somehow be in touch with your own, you can reach that in others. I mean, it, it, it's called empathy, and, it's, and all empathy is is understanding that you're like me, that, you know, that you're human and flawed, you're wounded, you've had problems, um, and if... Uh, and it's a, it's a deep religious thing, that, too, actually. It, it's one of the things that most of the big religions actually want people to do, to understand what it's like to be that person, um, which is why you should always buy the big issue. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Right, Sylvia, go. I know, Sylvia. My <laughs> acolyte. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, someone I know of at the age of 16 was struck with a horrific illness, and they died from it. Their life was basically shit because of it. Mm -hmm. A said that it was a spiritual lesson that they had to go through, and this person that I love was really kind and really talented, and they didn't deserve it in any way. No, 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 no. Now, from your perspective, why did it happen? Oh, this is this is, a, this is a question yeah, yeah, for the yeah. people who didn't hear. Yeah. This is a question about about the cruel God. Mm. You know, uh, um, our, our questioner was saying that she knew somebody very close to her who died in a very painful way, mm. had a very bad quality of life, and this is something that you address a lot in mm. the book, and it's something that 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 you have clearly thought about. You know, mm. how how can there be a God? And you talked about this last time, who allows mm. things, these mm. bad, terrible mm. things, to happen. And, and you, you can't, there's no answer. The trouble is most of the answers religion gives are terrible answers. They, 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 it, in theology, it's called theodicy. And theodicy, a couple of Greek words meaning justifying God. And there's a whole department in, in theology that tries to get God off the hook. Leave God on the hook. If there is a hook, this is a shitty universe for a lot of people, which is why I agree with Ivan Karamazov, who returns the ticket. He said any, a single child is tortured, so he doesn't want one in. Um, so don't buy religious answers. But religion is actually quite good at sitting beside the suffering. Um, uh, and I think the only real response to suffering is not to try to understand it, but to be beside it, to accompany it. And churches have been good at that. I mean, uh, we were good at that when AIDS was a terrible uh, epidemic in Edinburgh. I instance a remarkable woman um, in the book who was my chaplain to the, to the AIDS community in Edinburgh. She did 200 funerals. She lay beside 80 people dying of AIDS covered in their blood. 
Um, so religion can do good things as well. Its theories are junk. Ignore its theories, but try to get underneath to the practice of forgiveness and mercy. And I don't know the answer to that. Life is unequal. Some people live until they're 95. Some people are cut down when they're 14. Whatever life is, it's a gift. We don't know whether there's an ultimate giver giving it, but it, it, at least it's worth rejoicing for what you had. And I hope that you were able to rejoice in something of that person gave you. And that that person, I hope, I hope he got kind of comfort at the end. And got, you know, someone, a friend of mine who died, a, a young woman I loved who died of breast cancer. Um, and uh, they, they took her to, to um, a, a hospice. And there was a wonderful doctor there, a Dr. Doyle, a very kindly man. And she was frightened of, of, um, of, of, of dying. And he said, you're in the final, um, you're on the final platform now, lovey. He said to her, it won't be long now. And, and he said, but I'll buy a platform ticket. I'll be with you. And he was right up to the end. And he held her hand. And hold someone's hand when they're dying. Um, uh, we all ought to do that. We don't talk and open ourselves enough to death in our society. A lot of people die lonely, drugged out of their, their pills because we're afraid to, to hold the hands of the dying. You're all going to die. Hope someone holds your hand. <laughs> Sorry. I think, like, right now, 250 people are thinking, I want him to hold my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take Tom's question. Um, I was wondering what's your thoughts on, on the current play for militant secularism. Do you think it's a necessary corrective, or do you think it risks stripping out all It's what's called the, the, the militant secularism um, that, that we are apparently living through, sanity. Um, is, that, is, that, is that a necessary, is it a swing to the other extreme, um, uh, or is it um, where we are? Mm. I mean, I thought the richest thing about it was that Lord Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, called a meeting in the House of Lords to talk about religious persecution. I mean, isn't that... Isn't there a faint irony in that? We've got bishops in, that, in, in uh, the governing assembly of, of this country. Um, I think that religion is not being persecuted. It's being argued with. It's being disagreed with. It's being despised. But it's not being persecuted. Uh, my God, if you want persecution, go to some of the countries where it's actively being persecuted. Mm. Um, I actually like, I think there's a genial secular, secularity about Britain. And I think if, 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 the, if the religious kind of extremists would just calm down, there's a lot of tolerance for religion in this country. Um, most people call themselves cultural Christians. They don't mind popping into church it's only to sing carols. They've got a kind of friendliness towards it. What they don't like are the spiteful, hateful, cruel, persecutory religions. And I, that's why I like religion weak, because when religion's strong, it's terrible. But when it's weak and, and, and a bit kicked around, it can discover a kind of modesty. So I, I don't think there'd be... I mean, Richard Dawkins is not persecuting. He's arguing. Um, and he tends to argue a kind of straw man kind of religion, usually from Mississippi. Um, uh, and uh, so, but I, I welcome that because atheism and attacking religion is a good purification mechanism. Religions get things very badly wrong. And the trouble is that, that when one of the things Dawkins says is that bad people will do bad things anyway, but only religion can get good people to do bad things. Mm. Um, I know lots of kind people who are hateful towards gays. Now, you see, that, that, and that it's because they're religious. They may not 
like the state of gayness, uh, they, uh, but they wouldn't necessarily want to deny these people the right to have the same kind of relationships as the rest of us. Um, but it's the religion that forbids them. That's so why it needs to be constantly interrogated. You, you mentioned Mississippi there. Uh, two, two, two things. First of all, Rick Santorum, um, and, um, um, who, who, who said, you know, in every society, the definition of marriage has not ever, to my knowledge, included homosexuality. That's not to pick on homosexuality. It's not, you know, man on child, man on dog, or whatever the case may be. If the Supreme Court says you have the right to consensual sex within your home, then you have the right to bigamy, you have the right to polygamy, you have the right to incest, you have the right to adultery, you have the right to anything. And he just won two states in the United States oh, primaries. He? He, won, he won Mississippi um, oh, and, 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 and Alabama. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, I think it's a really interesting point that you make. It's a, a different, pe the pendulum is swinging mm. um, kind mm. of at different speeds. Mm. But I just kind of, a closing point on that, since, since we last saw you, you know, I got engaged to a man. <laughs> and, um, hi. And, 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 I, and I, I just thought I'd bring that up again. Um, and I, I, don't I don't understand. <laughs> Fair trade, 22 karat yeah, gold. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't understand why, you know, what, what, this, this, I mean, I think it was actually, what was sensational about it was not the, sec, the you know, the aggressive secular, it was actually the disbelief um, amongst many people that actually this, that we should, mm. this was a discourse, that this, mm -hmm. that, that this point mm -hmm. was even valid. And there was a kind of real surprise. It was like wildly retro, mm. like what's happening? Mm. You know, so mm. where, where do you think this is going to end up in terms of the, the terms of the church that we have? I think it will um, probably not move on. I mean, uh, the enormous Catholic Church won't move on, although if the cardinal, the Scottish cardinal, were told by the Pope, he would marry gay people tomorrow because th th theirs is a system of obedience. Mm. Um, I think the, 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 the thing that really outrages me is that Christianity is now reserving to its right the right to define words. Mm. We've always changed the definition of words when social realities. A voter in this country used to mean a man of property. Then it meant just a man, and then not very long ago it meant women. The word priest used to mean someone with a penis. Um, that got changed about 15 years ago. So you change the meaning of words when social realities change, and the meaning of marriage is an example of the same thing. Um, uh, to a Roman Catholic, um, officially, divorced people can't marry, mm. not just gay people. So that they, they exclude their kind of equal opportunities, excluders in, in all sorts of areas. Um, I think they will not change, but the government's not f forcing them to do religious no, weddings anyway. And that's what I resent, their lack of generosity, because they, they could say, our faith doesn't permit this. The rules don't allow us to do that, but Quakers want to do it, Unitarians want to do it, um, lots of Anglicans want to do it, and I know lots of Anglican priests are doing it. Oh, you did it in 1972? Yeah, I've, I've done seven um, over the years, um, and the first one was um, in 1972, and they were together till he died, and now uh, the survivor is dementing in hospital, um, and it was one, we did it quietly, I didn't blow trumpets and tell people I was doing it because it was for them. Mm. It w and uh, it's he, interesting because you he, say you did that privately and a lot of the criticisms that are leveled at you are that you're this kind of, you know, podium priest and you do things on radio, say things on Radio 4, but actually uh, when in your memoir you realize that a lot of the things, the vast majority of the things you have done have been private and, and personal and at those mm. moments, mm. those last mm. moments of holding hands, so I just wanted to make that point. Thank you. Um, no, 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 no it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important point. I'm going to take one more question because I, I know. Okay, Amy, you're there. Um, you were fantastically honest about that early vision of yourself as a kind of 
It's a, a great question, and I think I think that it, you know Richard talked earlier about it kind of being seduced by the theatricality of the church and by and the fact that that that, that necessitates you to step forward as an actor, as an individual, and mm -hmm. and and actually what Christianity perhaps calls for is the abnegation of the self, the removal of the self, and your mm -hmm. needs from a situation mm -hmm. where somebody else mm -hmm. you know needs your help. You can act as a good Samaritan, mm -hmm. and and do you think ultimately that is the sort of you know the the the, the structure the church has perpetuates that. No, I don't think it does. I mean, I think that one of the things I wrote the book about was to try and find out the kind of person I was. And I wasn't that kind of a person. I was another kind of person. Um, and I think the trick in life, and it takes a long time, is to find out who you are. Um, and it takes quite a lot of honesty, and it doesn't happen quickly, and sometimes it's a very painful lesson learned. There are two great types in the New Testament. Um, uh, there's the type of the beloved disciple, St. John, who doesn't say much. But he was there, the only man there at the end when Jesus was on the cross. Women were there, but he was the only man. And you don't get a sense of him asserting himself at all. And he's a classic type of sanctity and goodness, the person who doesn't think about himself at all, the utterly self-forgetful person. Mm -hmm. The other pole is St. Peter. Peter, like me, was, was a big mouth, great protestations of things. Um, and what people like Peter have to learn is to give themselves away because they're very conscious of themselves. He was a self-conscious man. Though others forsake you, I will die for you. And there he is in the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus is arrested, denying him three times. Um, it must have broken his heart because he loved Jesus. And, and people like that are full of ambition for themselves. And then when they fall, they're devastated. But he learned from the devastation. So I think that, that you do get those two types of goodness, the given away person and the person who's never been conscious of herself enough to give herself away. She's just good. And they're the kind of people that sit beside the sick. I've known one or two people like that, utterly oblivious to themselves, like my Jane Millard, who saw all these people to death. Um, and she would just lie there beside them for hours. I never had that kind of patience. But she was just so utterly given out of herself um, and that's a great kind of person to be. I was not constitutionally made to be that person. I have a raging impatience in me. Um, and so I was never going to be that kind of good person if I became a good person at all. He is exceptional. Yeah. This is true. To that dread level of nothing but life itself, Richard Holloway, thank you. Thank you, Maria.